0: The Christian, oh, the time has come And you know that you're the only one to say Okay
1: North-South Connection Podcast Network, welcome everyone to the latest edition of The Wrestler That Was. I'm your host, Aaron, and before we get started, listen, a big thank you to everyone who has reached out and commented on the show so far. You know, when you're doing, or when you're recording something like this, it often just feels like you're ranting and raving into an abyss. Like, I mean, I'm just sitting alone in my basement, right? Doing this when my family is, you know, living fulfilling lives. But just know that it's your comments and critiques. that Number one, it lets me know people are listening. But number two, it actually really makes it worth it. And that's not a cliche, it's true. Like, if you've just reached out to say, good show, man, you have no idea how much that means to me. So thank you so, so much. So today on The Wrestler That Was... So we're dealing, we're trying to figure out who the greatest uh, WWF wrestler of all time is. And we're building this slowly but surely. And today, we're dealing with one of the stalwarts of the 1990s. Big Daddy Cool Diesel. And when I decided on Diesel for the next entrant, I I was a little bit worried that it was a bit too close to Razor, who we dealt with three episodes ago. But then I guess in another sense... These two will always be intertwined, so why not do them close together while the former is still fresh in my mind? And if this is your first time listening to the wrestler that was, uh, here's how we do it. Uh, And I'd I'd always encourage you to go back into the archives and listen to the previous ones if you enjoy this one, as I believe all of these are are forever evergreen, because we're dealing with guys that are only retired. Uh, But this is how we do it. Uh, The wrestlers are all broken down into 10 categories, which gives us a nice rounded score out of 100. As of right now, the rankings sit at number one, Jake the Snake Roberts with 76.3 points. Batista is next with 63.2. Next is Razor Ramon with 62. And finally, the Honky Tonk Man with 56. And this is all way closer than I would imagine so far. But in fairness, I really haven't dealt with like the very tippy top. Uh, But I also haven't dealt with anybody so far who's going to be a complete disaster. So will Diesel be that disaster? Let's find out. So the first category we're dealing with is narrative. And this is basically um, the story of them in the promotion. Does it make sense? Does A lead to B and B leads to C? So here's the narrative for Big Daddy Cool Diesel. Shawn Michaels had a problem. Martin Gennetti. Now, despite being more skilled and the same size as Genetti, he just could not regain his Intercontinental title from the former and current rocker. If only knew Marty's Achilles heel, family vagina. But he didn't. So the wrestling world was introduced to Big Daddy Cool Diesel. This hulking man from Detroit was hired to protect the body of Shawn Michaels. And they went all in on the Diesel stuff too. See, it wasn't just enough to call him Diesel Presumably, because Vince thought he was the size of a truck. No, no, no. Instead, they present him as some sort of a human truck hybrid. He's brought to the ring with beeps and horns, like really annoying shit. Quite frankly, it's surprising in retrospect that they didn't uh, blare beeping horns when he walked backwards. I guess they were saving that effect for the garbage man. And don't write me to say that he was called Diesel by Shane McMahon because he was from the Motor City. Because listen, I can go on Wikipedia too, okay? We can play that game all day. From the start of his career, Diesel really just stands around while Michaels acts like a dickhead. So really, great job as a bodyguard. It was probably their real-life relationship too. But then everything changes at the 1994 Royal Rumble. He is fortunate enough to enter in the midst of a string of jobbers and Owen Hart. Now, a lesser man, say, a Bob Hawley figure, if you will, would have just laid in the corner and held on to another dude, but Diesel does the opposite. He tosses guy after guy out of that Rumble match. He eliminates seven guys, and he manages to get so over that we we forget that he was one of the 50 guys who were run down to murder The Undertaker earlier in the night. Diesel was lauded as a hero as he left the ring that night. And I'm not sure if the rumors of him potentially being fired were true or not, but when the WWF took one look at him destroying cowboys and an old man, the whole company shifted. He would then infuse himself in the feud between Michaels and Razor Ramon. And he actually managed to do what his employer could not, which was beat Razor for the Intercontinental Championship. He also did what Martin Giannetti could not do, which was make Shawn Michaels a tag team champion. This was no doubt done as a complete fuck you to Marty, whose towering presence necessitated Diesel's protection. But a funny thing started happening. Diesel kept getting kicked in the face. Every time they would line a guy up with Diesel holding him, the dude would move and Diesel would eat sweet chin music right in the mouth. Now... I think it's easy and lazy to blame Shawn Michaels for this. But Jesus Christ, Diesel, you're the one holding the guy. Why can't you hang on to him? It's not Shawn Michaels' fault that the guy got free from your arms. Or how about this? How about this? After this happens one, two times, why don't you stop performing the move? So, at the 1994 Survivor Series, Shawn kicks him one too many times. Diesel has had enough. He loses it and very slowly chases Shawn Michaels to the back. You know, instead of running after him and pummeling him to the ground, he settles on walking and screaming. Bold strategy. Three nights later, much like the Royal Rumble, everything changed again. He replaces Bret Hart in a match with newly crowned champion Bob Backlund and defeats the grizzled vet in eight seconds to become the WWF champion. He danced around the ring in a, in a fit of pure delight potentially giving himself whiplash in the process. But something happened during that dance that changed the Big Daddy once again. Now, I don't, there's no evidence, but I don't know if it was, if the dance induced a fit of ecstasy or some sort of a superstroke stroke situation. But Big Daddy Cool came out of that dancing sequence a changed man. He shook. He shook himself into a completely different persona. Now he smiled and slapped hands. He was now a, a laid-back, Bugs Bunny-esque type of character. It was fucking jarring. In fact, if he had said, what's up, Doc? It wouldn't have been surprising. It would have fit 100% into the new persona. We like to blame Roman Reigns for saying suffering succotash, but that has a direct link to Big Daddy Cool Diesel here. The new persona, though, helped him deliver a near year-long title reign during which he defended against former champion Bret Hart, banged Pamela Anderson, and tanked the ratings. Early in the title run, he defended against hated enemy Shawn Michaels at the 1995 WrestleMania. Diesel was more than happy to powerbomb his way to victory that night. But when Michaels' new bodyguard, Sid H. Christ, powerbombed him the next night, this was a step too far for Diesel. He came to the aid of his friend because, well... He's a, he's a good guy now, pal. He chased Sid off for doing the exact same thing that Diesel himself had done to Michaels the night before. Perhaps it was Diesel's knowledge that he was half the man that Sid was that led to these hypocritical actions. Sean and Diesel, though, were back to being best friends again. I guess all those kicks to the face were forgiven. I mean, sure, he seemed really mad, but I guess the passage of five months or, or leaning on Todd Pettengill together heals all wounds. They were christened, Diesel and Michaels, the two dudes with attitudes. And boy, were they fucking obnoxious. They would win the tag team gold as Diesel defended the belt valiantly against Sid, Davey Boy, and known water buffaloes Mabel and Sir Then Diesel fucked up, lost to Bret Hart. The title was dear to him too! So this prompted a serious beating for the hitman. Now, Diesel, coming out of this loss at the 1995 Survivor Series declared that he was only out for himself, his family, and his friends now. And that includes you, Shawn Michaels! He had shown weakness in his loss to Brett, and promised to be the raging asshole everyone fell in love with at the Royal Rumble in Providence. He gets super-kicked out of the next Royal Rumble by Shawn Michaels. But this time gives him a high-five instead of a stern talking-to. Then, he messes with The Undertaker, who promptly destroys him. Then, perhaps because of a concussion at the hands of the dead man... Diesel decides he would make a better enemy to Sean and starts laying a beating on him at every turn. One last kick to the face, Diesel gone from the promotion. But we're not done. Sadly, we're not done. Six years later, he is brought back as a lethal shot of poison. But before he can infect the promotion, he is struck with a lethal shot of a torn quadricep muscle. This was Obviously, a very strenuous injury, usually caused by rigorous physical activity, or in Nash's case, walking across the ring. After some rehab time, he returns again to get angry at Triple H for, I don't know, whatever Triple H bullshit was happening at the time. And he was forced to choose between being friends with Shawn Michaels or Triple H. Now, before he could present one of them with the, the coveted click rose, Triple H low-blowed him and made the decision for him. And Nash would be bludgeoned with a sledgehammer. He'd defeat the game by disqualification and finally beaten soundly inside Hell in a Cell. Then he lost his hair to Chris Jericho and then his credibility inside an elimination chamber. then he disappeared again. Until, not Nash, but Diesel of all people shows up at the 2011 Royal Rumble. This guy is given a hero's welcome as he places the leather glove on his hand. I thought this was like the most fitting way for him to end his WWF run. A massive hero in a role that's actually suited to him. This great nostalgia pop. What a great career he had if he would have just ended it there. Sadly though, 2011 is a longer year than just January. And in mid-2011, he receives a text message to return and stick WWE Champion CM Punk after his victory against John Cena. Now, much arguing would ensue about who sent the text message, and whether or not it was CM Punk's sister, Shalene? Now, Nash, in his defense, offered to show everyone the text message. But no one gave a fuck about text messages and professional wrestling, so we never got to see it. Thank you, Mr. Nash. This, logically, was leading to a confrontation with champion CM Punk, but instead, uh, it became about him and Triple H fighting over a sledgehammer. Obviously, that makes total sense. Then he enters the 2014 Royal Rumble. Um, it's a highlight. Uh, he's he's Kevin Nash here. Um, this 2014 Royal Rumble is famous for having a massive fan revolt. Um, but Nash was eliminated by that point, so I guess he's only partially responsible. And then he's gone. So I, I'll be honest. I think that his narrative and story is really pretty consistent until you get to like yuck, yuck, uh, laughing it up, Diesel, in 1994. And because it was literally overnight, and I feel like every aspect of his personality changed in an instant. And it, look, if they had blamed the stroke dance that he had in Madison Square Garden, it would have made perfect sense. But then everything else he did in his in his kind of run seemed to be about friendships or friendships falling apart. And I do like that through line. But nothing makes sense about how he forgives. Like, why forgive Sean in 95 just because you're good now? Why come help Triple H and the Authority in 2011? I mean, the last time you were in the promotion, he was bashing you in the head with a sledgehammer. And then when you did help him in 2011, he hits you with a sledgehammer then too. Why are there so many sledgehammers? So I was going to go the gentleman's five for this narrative in general. Uh, But I'm going to subtract one for the nonsensical nature of his friendships. And really just for being friends with Triple H. So he gets a four for narrative. Next, how good is he as a face? And I'll be honest, Diesel's kind of hard to rank in this category. There's probably something to be said for someone who becomes so popular as a bad guy that people start cheering him. Like, So people love, to this day, people love Darth Vader, Right. But I'm sure there's very few that want him to go over Luke Skywalker and murder Han Solo. But people got behind Diesel, though. It, it was organic. And people started to genuinely be happy he was on top. Now, the big problem is that when he was put on top, they turned him into something he wasn't. And he wasn't horrible at this. Like, at this, I don't know, jive-talking good guy. Well, I don't know how to describe him. But it just wasn't authentic. There was too much looking into the camera, too much shaking his head, and way too much fucking leaning. It's like it's like someone told him, someone took him backstage, hey dude, l- listen man, you want to look cool? Lean on shit. Lean on the lockers, lean on the phone booth, hell, lean on Ted, Todd Pettengill's shoulders. Like, it doesn't matter you're causing Todd Pettengill pain. We don't respect Todd Pettengill. Look at his hair, listen to his voice, lean on him. You want to be cool? Lean! God, he's he's so hard to place here. Because despite the inauthenticity of it all, he's a good face in the ring. Even though he's huge, right? Despite having the shittiest challengers as champion, he's able to stay over and garner sympathy. When he wasn't talking, he was cool. Even with the lamest possible cheerleader on, commentator, on commentating saying stuff like, He's big! He's cool! He's big! Daddy cool! he still remained over and worked as the face of the promotion. I thought his 2003 run was far less effective. People cheered when he came back to fight dastardly Triple H, but I think it might have come from a place of like, "Oh wow, you know, Triple H Triple H man actually put over his friend instead of the guys he's supposed to be putting over." But then he when he finally came out, he did look tired. It's it's not a highlight. I guess in the end we have to give him credit for the post-Survivor Series 1994 run. Um, Excuse me, uh, not not 94, 95 run. He's still a face, but he's a new kind of face. A face that would ultimately become the defining character of the late 90s. Fuck, this project's hard. Uh, I'm going to go 7 out of 10 for face work. I think that makes sense. Now, there's obviously a flip side to that. How good is he as a heel? Again, tricky, right? Because... The first run as Michael's bodyguard is really generic stuff. and Despite the fact that he has some natural, easy, natural advantages to help him. His size m- makes for an imposing heel. And he just looks fucking mean, right? These things seem simple. But in contrast, contrasting with a guy like Big Show, who never looks mean. Like, Big Show always kind of looks either confused or, or jovial. Or confused as to why he's still hungry. I mean, like, Still? What the fuck, man? It's enough. There's nothing left. Diesel was also surprisingly good at stooging around for a big dude, which I think is pretty integral to becoming a good heel. However, once he finally does turn heel on Shawn Michaels in 96, so like his, the very end of his uh, first WWF run, I think he really steps it up into the bad guy side of things because he becomes a sadistic fuck who's bound and determined to annihilate his friend. He goes from his like most likable persona to getting the entire building to cheer for a male stripper. A male stripper, mind you, who may be banging an old Mexican. That's skillful. That's powerful stuff. But his 2002 NWO run is dog shit in terms of being a heel. The night he brings Shawn Michaels into the fold is particularly egregious. And the sad part, is, I think the sad part with all of this I mean, we're going to get into it here. The sad part here is that in 2002 in the WWF, he's not really doing much different than he was in WCW. And and those are the things that ended up making him a mega star. He's playing cool heel Kevin Nash here, right down to the relaxed way he holds the microphone. He's got his hands in his pockets. He's relaxed. I mean, this is the guy we cheered in WCW, despite him doing awful, terrible things, uh, booking the promotion into a pit, uh, destroying Goldberg. We still cheered him. So why isn't it working here? Well, I think we're looking at a major problem with timing and a total lap of, lack of adaptation. No matter what, the NWO was doomed in the WWE because Vince was never going to make it a thing because he didn't create it. But it didn't have a fighting chance when they refuse to let it live in the current world. So one of the reasons, I think, and this is all theory, obviously, right? But one of the reasons I think the cool heels um, of the NWO worked so well in the past is because they were fighting against the forces of WCW. Now, WCW, for better or worse, represented tradition and old-fashioned wrestling. The very same feud, <laughs> it's funny, the very same feud that permeates the beginning of NWATNA played out, on Turner TV from 1996 to 1998. Only this time, we didn't have Mike Tenay spelling it out for us like we're children. But I think cool heels worked in WCW because they were standing up to faces from the 1980s and sometimes the 1970s. That's why they were able to garner so much support and be as over as they, was. they were. Like even someone like Hogan, who was never really accepted by the WCW audience, became over as a heel. In fact, he was the only one who consistently got booze. It worked really well um the problem is like in wcw the nwo were the coolest people in the promotion except for maybe hogan however in the wwe in 2002 it's a completely different world so he's the same cool kevin nash right he's the same cool guy but now he's not fighting tradition he's now up against the no-nonsense winners of the war that he and the NWO helped lose. These were the guys, so now he's up against the guys that the fans chose over the NWO. Like, a cool heel isn't going to get a decent reaction against Stone Cold Steve Austin, right? Like, Christ, Austin is still basically a heel. You're never going to out-cool the rock. So the failure to turn the NWO into something that could live in this world is one of those choices that doesn't really get talked about enough as part of its downfall, right? Like, they should have probably been just killers. The poison they were meant to be, right? Because when you look at the N.W.O. Nash from this era, nothing really works. He's a guy who's totally out of place. He doesn't have the persona of Scott Hall, whose sheer charisma was able to carry him, and he doesn't have the nostalgic love of the people that Hulk Hogan had. And I think by the time he brings out Michaels, it just it feels like a sad old man gripping at anything he can to hang on to his relevance. And that's a terrible bad guy. Because, again, you can't outcool cool the rock. You're never going to be as cool as him. You're never going to be as – you're never going to be as like – you're never going to frighten Stone Cold Steve Austin, right? Um, you're never going to be as badass or as capable in Latin as Triple H. You You, you don't have a niche anymore. So, the cool NWO just doesn't work. But let's rank their characters all the same. Um, did I give him a score for being a heel? I did not. So, his skill, I think his score for being a heel, at least in the WWF, uh, comes in at a six. So, a little below. Still above average, but a little below um, where he is as a face, which I, I wouldn't have thought before this project. So, let's rank their characters. I got six of them. So, number six, 2011 text message Kevin Nash. So, he's here to... Ruined the push of one of the biggest stars of the 2010s. His hair is dyed. He's wearing skinny jeans. I I could can, can just never get past him saying, would you like to see the text message? I mean, this is the same guy who ended Goldberg's streak. And now he's like, please look at my text history. Number five, NWO Kevin Nash in the WWF. I think he set new standards for being casually cool and tearing one's quad while walking across a ring. But he really didn't do anything in this run besides back up Scott Hall and bring Shawn Michaels into the NWO. Now, like, when Michaels came down for that introduction, like, he Nash should have taken one look at that hat and fucking powerbombed his ass out of the group. Number four, Kevin Nash hates Triple H 2003. I don't know why. I don't know why he hates him. I guess it's because he's friends with Shawn Michaels, but we're also supposed to know that Sean and Hunter were friends in real life, even though they feud on TV, but not Nash, or, or Nash, wait, is Nash, Nash is their friend, but not when they're on TV, or he's only Sean's friend on TV, uh, but is he friends to both backstage, or is he just friends to one of them backstage, and on TV he hates, oh, look, I hate the internet, I hate it all. Number three, world champion, Big Daddy Cool. I think I mentioned, it's not, it's not actively bad. It's just a shadow of what it could have been. The WWF had something cool that they made lamer. Just let the guy be himself. Number two, original bodyguard Diesel. Look, silent asshole, mean streak. Classic character. It's always going to work. And I think uh, Diesel, Kevin Nash's best character he plays in the WWF, is the I'm back, big daddy cool uh, this follows the 1995 Survivor Series. Look, he'll beat the shit out of anyone, but we will still look out for his friends. And not just his dumbass backstage friends. And, you know, in contrast to someone who fights heels and loves faces, I thought this was a, a real human person with real nuance. Like a guy who, would act, who acts like 90% of the population. Like, we don't give a fuck if people think you're a good guy. If you're in the way, you're getting stomped. The next category is work. So this is really just work in the ring, not dealing with matches. Um, just how does he move? What does he do? So I think there's probably an argument to be made that Diesel is the worst worker to hold the WWF title, maybe ever. And yes, I know, <laughs> I'm aware that this is a conversation that involves Sid. We'll get to Sid eventually, all right? Just right? I'm not gonna bury him today because he's the best. But look, If Diesel isn't the worst worker ever to hold the big belt, then I would probably think he's almost certainly the worst one to hold it up until that point in history. Maybe Stan Stasiak. We just don't have enough of of footage on him to really make a judgment one way or another. But I I just think at this point, he's probably the worst. And it's not like he's awful. I don't think Diesel's awful at all. I think he's just uninspiring as a worker. As a character, he can be top-notch. But yeah. Then the bell rings and, you know, things don't always go well. Now, that being said, there are some things he does very well. I love, love his elbows to the face. I'm not sure how he fakes them. He probably doesn't. But by 95, he probably had so much power in the company that short of concussing Shane McMahon, no one would give a shit. Scratch that. Vince never gave a shit if anyone fucked up his son. So he barely cared when Vince himself fucked him up emotionally. So why would he care if someone hurt him? But seriously, those elbows look deadly. He also really carried himself around the ring well. His side suplex looks better than Dino Bravo's. His big boot, <laughs> like his big boot, rarely looks like he's gonna break his own leg at the knee. And I would say, for a guy who was dominant in ring, uh, like his presence is really dominant. I really struggle to list different things he did in the ring. Now, later in his career, he's called Big Lazy. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's fair. I think, I think he actually works hard in the ring. But I think that his moveset lends itself to looking lazy. So, so much, like, you know, We talked about leaning in the promos, but there's so many leaning things in his moves too. Like he'll get a guy in the corner and then lean his leg into his throat. He'll put a guy in the ropes and jump on his back, but then lean there for a while. He'll lean a guy into the corner. Then every five to 10 seconds, he'll throw an elbow backwards. I mean, look, even look, even his power bomb looks lazy. Imagine making a power bomb look lazy, but it does. It's like he picks the guy up and then when he's got the guy at the top, he's like, ah, fuck it. Just let's go. Contrast this guy with a guy like Sid. I know I don't have to bring up Sid again, but a guy like Sid who like drives his opponents to the mat into an early retirement or, or even Ahmed Johnson, who would drive men and women directly onto his own thighs. Look, I'm sure in many ways that hurt more. There's certainly way less regard for the opponent's safety, but think of the optics, Diesel, all right? For the most part, Diesel moves around the ring like he's looking pretty fucking cool. But then there's moments where he looks like he's lumbering, which kind of takes me out of the match at times. So these are small things, but you know. I do think he's actually pretty good as a seller, though, uh, when he has to be. Like he's good when a guy like Brett is working his leg. But then the problem with that is it just slows the match to a crawl. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. And it's not to say Diesel isn't capable of great matches. It's just I always find that when I when I we do get a great match at a diesel, it's almost like a little surprise, right? And I know it takes two to tango. Obviously that's true. But I feel more than anyone else we've talked about so far, Diesel's great matches are always, and I mean always when he's in there with another master it's kind of no surprise that later in his career when he's in there with like a make-believe master like Triple H his matches are almost universally shit so in terms of work um, I'm gonna go three so I just think there's not enough variety some of his stuff looks good he ends up looking lumbering um, and I, I think like he gets carried a lot and I think even at his best his stuff is serviceable rather than exciting and I can't I can't think of one thing that he does in ring that someone else doesn't do better. So like think of a guy like Batista we talked about, who adds a snap of intensity to everything. Think of Honky, whose over the top selling made everything better. Even Razor was able to imbue everything he did with, with his character. Diesel was there. He was solid for a big guy. He didn't hurt the show, but ultimately he brought few unique elements to the table. All right, let's look at his matches. Um, So to do this, because obviously we're working on a five-star scale, what I do is I average all the matches of his I've watched. Um, There's enough at this point. For Diesel, is 23. So once you get past past 15 matches, the averages really don't change that much. So it's a pretty good sample size for him. So you take the average star rating, which for Diesel was 2.815, multiply it by 2, and that gives us 5.63 out of 10. Um, which isn't bad. I mean, it's it's pretty standard for what everything has been so far. Let's deal with Diesel's uh, bottom five matches, though, first. Let's break those down, see where he may have gone wrong. So his fifth worst match. From In Your House, Great White North versus the British Bulldog. He's defending the WWF Championship. And I would say that I think they do themselves no favors right off the bat, bringing out Bret Hart on commentary before the match. Because Bret is more over and just better than either guy in the match. He is, however, the worst of the three on commentary. So, Bret's also wearing a hockey sweater tucked into his jeans. And let me assure you, this is not a Canadian thing. The people of Winnipeg looking at this were more than likely appalled. And I'm going to say this, uh, and I never thought I'd say this. There are too many fucking tassels on Davy Boy Smith in this match. He looks like a big British pinata. And I can only imagine the sheer amount of fish and chips that would tumble out of his busted open chest. That and the disappointing faces on the children when they realize they're getting fish and chips. They'd be as disappointed getting fish as they would be opening up a box and getting the shirt that Doc Hendricks is shilling for the two dudes with attitudes in the aisle. So Doc is there. And Diesel walks by in his entrance... And makes sure to tell Doc... I'm feeling funky! Whatever the fuck that means. What, what, what is that? <sighs> like, he's just so detestable. And I'll say this for Diesel though. He's a detestable character... But he's in character. And he, once he, get pa- he gets past the... Oh, I'm so funky... He does look cool. And he is legit as champion by this point. The teenage girls are fawning over him. And then Ross... Jim Ross goes. Uh, I'm going to talk about a native Canadian who came from a thousand miles away. Where on earth could he be talking about? Right, like it, it, he has no clue about the geography of Canada. Anyway, the first part of the match is uh, Bulldog testing his strength. Diesel, Diesel's overpowering him, brawling with him. Um, I like I mentioned in the work. I really dig Diesel's elbows and forearms. They look super stiff. Diesel also. Has too many tassels. This might be the most tassels in the ring at one time ever. And and the Ultimate Warrior wore a lot of tassels, but there's just it's out of fucking control. They're all over Davy's uh, jacket. They're all over his boots. They're all over Diesel's pants. It's too many tassels. It's interesting how um, Davy has to bust out speed and quickness to roll with Diesel, um, and then Diesel gets knocked out of the ring, which leads him to pie facing Brett. So I. I guess we're going with this story that, like, Brett's going to get involved. And now we're beating down Diesel's legs, and this is where the match slows to a crawl. Um, then <laughs> Davey stomps him a couple times and does some sort of move, which Ross calls a leg lace. I've never heard that before, but then Brett goes, huh, look, Oh, it looks like it's uh, putting pressure on his shin bone. It looks like nothing, and but we get a near fall out of it. Then, in a hilarious spot... <laughs> This fucking even think about it now, it's popping me. Uh Diesel falls to the floor and Jim Cornette drops a a massive elbow. <laughs> it was it was pitch, it was surprisingly pretty. It was pitch perfect. It's a better elbow uh than 90% of the roster could drop. He, he got so much air, his form was perfect. Look, Cornet is so active here that my pal JT is going to put him on his greatest WWE wrestler, of all, greatest wrestler of all time list. Look, shitty single leg crabs, Boston crabs. I guess the single leg crab is like a Providence crab. Diesel is like at about half a foot from the ropes, but instead of like reaching for the ropes, he decides to just take the brunt of the hold. Again, bold strategy. And I get that the best way to fight Diesel in kayfabe is to break his legs. But it's making for such a boring-ass match. Then Vince declares that Diesel's torso is seven feet tall. This would make him fucking gigantic. And it's also a lie, considering his legs are 75% of his body. Diesel does get some hope, but then we're back to lying on the leg for five seconds. And I think there's just like three, four minutes of leg work here, and it sucks for so many reasons, because here's, here, here, here's one. Here's one of the reasons. If you're in a leg hold for three to four minutes, and you haven't given up, why on earth should we believe that that hold hurts? Despite, despite the leg injury after, Diesel's able to toss the bulldog around with some suplexes. Also, I've noticed that none of the WWF superstars or the super fans have made the trek to Winnipeg, like I bet Chris Jericho even sat this one out. Davy then breaks out a terrible sharpshooter um, that makes the Rock look like Bret Hart. Bret on commentary like ridicules him, like which I completely appreciate. Diesel powers out with his legs despite ten minutes of leg work. Diesel then starts his comeback. The fans start popping. Then they fuck up a post spot on the outside. Bulldog hits Bret. And then Brett jumps in the ring and pummels the bulldog to the loudest the crowd has been since the start of the match. Now, I want to say, I don't know if I made this clear. In the match, Diesel hit like three moves the whole times. He elbowed him, he jumped on him once in the ropes, and gave Davy a big boot. The rest of the match was him just having his leg beaten up. And his leg is now fine as him and Brett Hart are fighting. I had this at two stars. This might be worse than two stars. It's long, it's boring, and nothing happens. All right, his fourth worst match of all. That's the fourth? Can you imagine? So, I will say, so far in this project, like, we haven't had a ton of, like, guys who have bad matches. Even Honky, all his bad matches were like, okay, you know, whatever. It was what it was. But, like, that was the fifth worst, and it was terrible. Fourth worst, teaming with Bam Bam Bigelow, versus Sid and Tatanka from King of the Ring 1995. I can't even fathom how the crowd was feeling going into this main event. They had to sit through three Savio Vega matches. This poor main event never had a chance. And it's almost almost unfair to Diesel. He has to deal with Tatanka in a main event. Then Vince declares Sid and Tatanka are an awesome combination. And that might be the biggest lie he's ever told. And that includes any and all things he said to the police while defending Jimmy Snooker. Diesel then calls Tatanka Pocahontas in a pre-match interview. I had no clue that Tatanka was related to Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> it's a political joke from the guy from Canada. Uh, bam Bam is wearing the fucking dumbass flame jacket. And then Vince goes, uh, he's talking about Bam Bam. He goes, slam, bam, bam, bam. Like, are there not enough Am sounds? Already in the man's name? It's Bam Bam. We don't need slam and cam and ham. We don't need any of that. Pretty tepid pop for the world champion Diesel here. And his entrance is pretty hokey, right? Uh, Immediately (laughs) selling uh, Tatanka's dancing and prancing like he's... (laughs) It's not good. The match does seem to be built around Diesel's arm being fucked up from an injury. And at least they're working it. But it does feel weird that in both matches so far... With Diesel that we've seen in this project anyway. It's just him selling the whole time. And Sid is just taken to punching the inside of his elbow. Which I like. So in a strange moment, Bam Bam has Sid beat. And then the ref isn't there. So he runs over to him. Then Bam Bam runs back to cover Sid. Like it's just so sloppy. Sid though does a sweet choke slam from the second rope. And instead of uh, capitalizing on this in pinning him Sid decides to pantomime crying and then slowly tags Tatanka who then comes in and pins him it leads to nothing though and I'm pretty sure the last time I watched this match uh, and originally scored it it was at the end of watching the whole King of the Ring show I was hoping that in a vacuum this would be better without the weight of all the shit before it it's not then the match just becomes bam bam Bigelow taking a beating Finally, Diesel gets a hot tag, runs in the ring for 10 seconds, hurts his elbow again on an elbow drop. We're back to Bam Bam in then. And uh, immediately he gets to talk in a rest hold. I hate rest holds in tag team matches. It's like when I'm coaching my son's hockey team Like, and I'm like, just if you're fucking tired, get off the goddamn ice. Jake Roberts is probably throwing furniture around his house at all the DDTs being thrown in this match. Diesel's elbow, elbow, though, he comes back in. Diesel's elbow is fine now for a hot tag. Big boot, fist in the air, horribly sloppy jackknife on Tatanka. He's got Tatanka beat, even though Tatanka's body is half outside the ring. He pins him, but pulls Tatanka up at two. He then demands Sid fight him. Sid, of course, walks out. Diesel then walks over, drops an elbow, with the bad elbow, mind you, and pins Tatanka. What What a shitty finish to a terrible show. One and three-quarter stars. So, so far of his bottom five matches, two are during that title reign. We'll see if the the pattern continues. Or maybe there's new patterns. Oh, look. His third worst match from Judgment Day 2003 versus Triple H. And now we're into the Nash run. I, uh, I am not. I watch everything for this project. I go back and I watch. And when I put this on, I was like not looking forward to this at all. Um, here's Shawn Michaels coming out. I And like I don't remember. I have zero understanding why. And I love how... I love how Howard Finkel has to say, Introducing the individual who will be in the corner of the challenger. Way too many words to describe what he's doing there. You don't even need to introduce him. Pretty tepid reaction for a leather pants Kevin Nash. And then Jim Ross says... Kevin Nash would rather fight a man than make love to a woman. What a strange thing to say. And, and and why on earth would he be like that? And in what world do you have to make that choice? Then Ric Flair gets his introduction as Triple H's second. I don't know why these guys are going to introductions. Like, I feel like the show might have been running short, right? So we're right smack in the middle of the uh, reign of terror of Triple H. Um, and Triple H still gets a better face reaction than Kevin Nash. Fighting on the floor while the fireworks are blasting. Triple H is in purple. Uh, He's going through quite the phase here. Uh, The seconds right away have been thrown out. So Flair and Michaels are thrown out. I want to say, I don't know, immediately. And after all the introductions, they're thrown out 30 seconds into the match. Triple H is doing his best Ric Flair impression in this match. He's about 25% of what Ric Flair was here. And I'll be honest, in past matches, I use I'll be honest too much. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm working on it. In past matches, I kind of lamented that Nash didn't get much offense. I miss those matches because now it's all slow. Body slams, elbow drops, sluggish blows, Triple H rakes his eyes and shoves Hebner. And for some reason, Hebner doesn't disqualify him. And then at this remember like a lot of these matches I watched a long time ago and I don't remember everything. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, that's going to be the story, isn't it? Something with the ref. So Nash uh, gets on top and starts punching Triple H. Hebner runs in, tries to get him off, gets shoved to the ground. I don't want refs to be part of storylines, okay? They did it once really good in 1988 and every other moment they've ever tried, diminishing returns. Then Hebner fucking eats a massive clothesline. All right, that was all right. (laughs) eating that clothesline. Triple H kicks Nash in the balls after begging off. I mean, he's just really trying to be a flair here. Then Ross goes, Nash is a natural self paw. Aren't all self paws natural? Your life, I would imagine, is harder if you're left handed. The world is not built for you. Who's doing that out of choice? <sighs> it drives me insane. Nash's charisma in this match is non existent. Could it be? Could it be? That the company line of him being a cancer for all those years finally worked. Nash gets Triple H up for a snake eyes. He shoves Hebner down, but Triple H smashes him into the exposed turnbuckle. Then Nash gets kicked kick out of a pedigree. This match is so fucking slow. I should talk as slow as this match is. Triple H gets the sledgehammer. I'm not going to torture you. Uh, Triple H gets a sledgehammer and Hebner says no. So Triple H just fucking blasts him with a sledgehammer. And the bell just rings. Not sure who stopped the match because Hebner is dead. Right? Nash then power bombs him as Ross, <laughs> Ross is like, Kevin Nash is a wounded animal. Terry Taylor and Sergeant Slaughter and others try to get Triple H out before Nash can beat him any further. What's the point? What's the point of this? I don't even know what the finish is right does nash want to be world champion right if he wants to be world champion why did he and triple h spend the whole fucking match beating up earl hebner why why don't they, do they ever behave this way in other matches it just reads like these two needed to stretch this to another show and this is the best they could come up with one and a half stars and that doesn't feel low enough <sighs> only one match of the bottom 5 so far has been with triple h Guess what? That's about to change. His second worst match of all time versus Triple H, TLC 2011. And these two should not be sharing a ring in 2011. This is the culmination of Nash returning at SummerSlam and screwing over CM Punk. Notice that CM Punk is not in the match as he lost the feud with Triple H for the privilege of having this match. I can't even begin. To tell you how surprised I am that this match isn't main eventing the show. Nash comes out to the NWO music. Very little reaction. And his hair is clearly dyed black. So much so that from behind, he looks like an, an older Brian Lee. Michael Cole does his best. I hate Michael Cole, but he does his best. Um... To run down the story of Nash feeling like he deserved a job, but Triple H didn't return his calls. I mean, what a what a what a dynamite premise for a match. The guy won't return my phone calls. I would have bet too, I would have bet that in this scenario, I mean, again, it's been a long time. I there's no way I was going back to watch this match for my own pleasure, right? I would have bet a thousand bucks that Triple H was the heel here. But no, no, he's the face. He's the the good guy in this feud. Meaning that he'll be extra insufferable. Why are these guys having a ladder match? I can't. Th- it's a ladder match with a sledgehammer at top. I can't think of two guys less suited for a ladder match. Nash does his shitty elbows in the corner to start things off. Um, thankfully, Triple H is the strongest ever, so he just takes over with punches. I- I'm I'm shocked that he's not called a pure striker. Crowd then chants Triple H, Triple H. And I just lose all kinds of respect for society as a whole. The whole match is a lot of you punch me, then I punch you. And it's not working for me at all. Triple H beats Nash's knee with a ladder. Yeah, because that's what we need. We need Kevin Nash to be more immobile. I should mention too that Nash in general at this point, and this is not, he's getting older, right? But he really, I find, looks like a shell of his former self here. The hair is dyed black. It's scraggly. It looks at 50% volume. He looked way better at the Rumble earlier in the year. This is what working with Triple H does to you. Just destroys you. Triple H is a figure four through a ladder, but it's really just putting his leg through a ladder. There's no pressure being applied on any joint. It's just a whole lot of nothing. Cole then says that Triple H was hurt. (laughs) Hurt. He was hurt by finding out that his 20-year friendship was based on lies and deception. Triple H was hurt by this. The biggest bastard in the promotion for the past 10 years. The same guy who tried to maim his friend Shawn Michaels, right? The guy who's repeatedly bashed Kevin Nash in the head with a sledgehammer. He was hurt because because his friendship was based on lies and deception. You beat the man in the head. You probably took years off of his life. <sighs> We're also in full Triple H big match mode where we get one big move, then lying around, rinse, repeat. <laughs> Cole and Lawler they have to fill the time because it's just time now between moves and Cole and Lawler are now arguing about who didn't or who did return whose phone call <laughs> like this is also called, Michael Cole at one point goes this is an explosion <laughs> he can't even say it with a straight face he goes this is an explosion of emotion <laughs> it's an explosion of vomit alright because Nash can barely get Triple H up for a side slam very slow slingshot into the ladder by Nash on Triple H. Crowd has gone silent, by the way. And you can tell that the announcers are fucking bored. This is something, again, that's not talked about enough. I would say from 2011 to 2014, you can always tell when Michael Cole is bored or tired. You can totally hear it in his voice. He just kind of (laughs) like... And they're just not into it anymore. And it's a terrible attribute for a guy who's supposed to be selling how important everything is. Okay, so back to the match. There's a sledgehammer above the ring, but it's it's actually never clear if if you actually have to get it down to win the match. So like just it, it looks like Nash is about to powerbomb through a table to end this match. But then like Triple H fights back, then they lie around again. Both guys climb the ladder. Triple H uses the sledgehammer while it's still tied to the rope, hits Nash twice in the head. So they're on a ladder. Nash gets hit twice in the head. It drops him through a table. And Kevin Nash is still moving. Why? Two sledgehammer shots to the head and this guy can still walk? Then Triple H gives him four more to the knee. The crowd is dead, but can you blame them? The suspension of disbelief is impossible when guys are surviving this bullshit. Nash tries to get up, but Triple H tosses the sledgehammer away and pedigrees him. The crowd chants one more time. Nash is given the click sign. Crotch chop, hammer to the head, three count. (laughs) Seven. Seven sledgehammer shots. Seven. (laughs) This thing had zero flow. Like, zero flow. Wasted time. 18 minutes. They could have done the same thing in 10 or 5. Or it could have never happened. Or maybe without the bullshit from these two, CM Punk becomes a transcendent star. Fuck this match. One star. (sighs) But guess what? We're not done. We're not done. We got one bad match left. And I bet you can guess who it's with. Because the pattern is clear. Kevin Nash's worst match in the WWF. WWE at that point. Bad Blood 2003 versus Triple H. I don't like to cheat you guys, but I was contemplating just not watching this. I was like, fuck, I gotta get up early. I'm just gonna go to bed. Nope. Here we go as Nash comes out, Ross calls him the physical dissector. And then already Ross is like, this could get ugly. Yeah, we know. Foley's the ref. I guess he's here to help Triple H again. Uh, Triple H goes full blue blood, uh, all in blue tonight. You know, of all the Ric Flair uh, parroting he does, I think the thing I like the most is mixing up the tights color. Right away, they shove each other into Foley. I guess, because this is like the the match after the Hebner match. I guess is to tell everybody that the bullshit from the month before with Hebner, it's not happening tonight. Ross and Lawler are trying real hard to get Nash over. But it's hard, considering Nash has accomplished, I don't know, exactly zero since he came back in 2002. Then Nash introduces a steel chair. This is a hell in a cell, by the way. And Nash introduces a steel chair, and Lawler complains. And then... (laughs) Ross goes, what well, would you rather, a wicker chair? Which I quite liked. Uh, very, very slow action on the outside. Hunter the Toolman Helmsley breaks out a toolbox. I don't want tools in wrestling, but he breaks out a toolbox. But then, of all the things in there, all the tools that pop out, what he takes to use is the plastic tray that, that, that's holding the tools. That, that's what he uses. Then he gets a fucking hammer. Of course he has to get a hammer. I don't know why we have to have hammers in wrestling, right? Blasts his knee with it. At least it's the knee. Then he full swings Nash in the head with a hammer. He misses, but that's that's a fucking homicide, right? Oh, no, wait. He doesn't miss. I thought he missed. He doesn't. He, he commits a homicide. Because despite a full hammer shot to the head from a 250-pound man nash is up and fine then triple h punches him and he starts to bleed i don't understand why we have to use so many tools in these fights and worse the use of these tools never ends the match one one hammer shot it's enough to end a man's life it's a ball pin hammer the guy would be dead (sighs) like he would be dead at best case scenario it's the end of nash's erections forever Now Triple H has a screwdriver, and it looks like he's going to impale him with it. Ross is like, "I apologize for the graphic display. Could you could you apologize for insulting our intelligence instead?" See, people think that when you say like the WWE is insulting our intelligence, it means dumb stories. But like, that's not. I don't think that's really what it means. It's when we can't possibly believe what we're watching, but are expected to buy in. Every wrestling promotion does stupid stories. Now, Triple H goes for barbed wire 2x4, but who cares? Who cares? It's nowhere near as deadly or as the ball pin hammer that we used 10 minutes ago. And look, I know it seems like I can't get over the hammer, right? But it's just so stupid. The barbed wire board has a handle on it, so I guess someone will be climbing with it. Who on earth? I mean, it's someone has already taken time to wrap a 2x4 in barbed wire, but who on earth is like, you know what this needs? A wrist, A wrist strap. Someone screwed that hook in someone attached the leather and then screwed the hook into the bottom of the two by four trying not to split the wood on the sides because then someone will be mad. Triple H starts bleeding and the blood is pretty spectacular. I just wish this dude had an editor. I've barely been able to talk about the Nat and Nash in any of these matches right in the last three. I've barely talked about Nash because what's happening around him is so fucking stupid that and I only have limited bandwidth to be able to deal with all the bullshit. So a wood crate at ringside now. It gets broken on Nash's head. Lying around. And then Triple H gets a sledgehammer. Foley tries to take it from him. Why? Why would Foley do this in the match? They do a really contrived drop toe hold while Triple H is carrying the steps. I just want this to end. Sick chair shot to Nash. And I'm and surprisingly sick chair shot to Foley. Out of nowhere, starts to bleed. Of course, Foley destroys the tone of the match by breaking out Mr. Socko and do the claw. Like, we don't need the comedy here. But of course, Triple H gets the better of Foley, kicks him in the nuts. Then Nash blasts both of them with chairs. Foley, the referee in the match, takes the big bump to the cage because neither of the other guys has the balls to do it. And then as soon as Nash hits the powerbomb, Foley's up and fine, close to. Now all three guys are lying around. And Lawler and Jr. are in a debate whether Triple H is a bastard or not. We know he's a bastard. Sledgehammer to the face of Nash. Pedigree. Triple H wins. God damn it. What a shit show. Why do these matches need to be this long? Why do tools designed to build buildings need to be used in a wrestling match? And when they're used, they barely do any damage. I guess we need to fill time, but Nash can't be expected due to do a Triple H style match here for 20 minutes. It's not fair. If Nash with if Nash wasn't buddies with everyone, he'd re, he'd receive the same ridicule and deep push as Scott Steiner. But, you know, we're apparently doomed to see these guys go at it forever. <laughs> Is it any surprise that of the two guys we've dealt with that wrestled post 1999, so Nash and Batista, both of their worst matches are with Triple H? I'm at 0.5 stars. I'm to give it something for Foley and the blood and the chair shots, but it's terrible. So I think these these matches really show how limited a worker Kevin Nash is. So he spends the first two we looked at doing nothing and then ignoring the selling he'd done early in the match. And then when the series are Triple H, I mean, he's just, it's not, it, it's not really his fault, but he has to bear the responsibility because he's in it. But he's miscast as the dude who can go for 20 minutes. It's too long. They don't have good chemistry. How many other guys is Triple H going to fuck over? The answer? All of them. But thankfully, we have some good matches to deal with. So let's deal with uh, Kevin Nash's top five matches. Number five. King of the Ring 1994. He's the Intercontinental Champion. He's trying to win the WWF title from Bret Hart. I think this is going to be a great example of a match that I may have rated too low. Because I never saw this match live for for whatever reason in '94, I just I, either I didn't order it or I didn't have access to it. In fact, when I got the WWE Network, the very first show I watched on it uh, was this one, King of the Ring '94, because I had to hear Art Donovan. I never heard it. When I sat down to rate it, it was during the year that was right. And sometimes I'll be I'll be totally transparent. If I'm not enjoying a particular show, I think a match like this could be hurt. So let's see if this holds up in a vacuum. Diesel actually gets a pretty decent reaction coming out. Uh, I'll always, always, always love Art Donovan not knowing who Shawn Michaels is. Um, <laughs> and you can also really hear how badly Savage wanted to work with Michaels when he puts him over to Art Donovan. It's also weird to hear Gorilla Monsoon say the, the phrase, new WWF generation. Um, I love the Nightheart stuff. I think it's a good storyline all night. Uh, But boy, does he look like a tool in his wrestling gear. Like, you don't got a pair of Zubaz back there, pal. And Vince must have been losing his shit backstage with Art calling Michaels and Neidhart seconds. What? (laughs) Great display of power uh, at the start for Diesel. Brett gets into trouble immediately when it comes to a slugfest. Diesel throws some great elbows rather than punches. This is a cool match, and it's a nice contrast to the matches I watched uh, for the Honky Tonk Man. Because Diesel's in control until he makes a mistake. And and, and it's a different type of heel as opposed to Honky who only can capitalize on mistakes. Um, But it really puts over his superior size and strength and makes Brett look like a super technician who has to capitalize on every mistake. Uh, It's like the face heel rolls are reversed in terms of structure. But that being said, Brett is great at capitalizing on the mistakes and it really just makes him look smart. The match does slow down quite a bit as uh, Brett works the lateral collateral ligaments. This is a staple of Bret Hart matches from the era and probably why I didn't like a lot of them at the time. Tremendous interference from Sean, though, Uh, (laughs) throughout. Great example of good sloppy, which is something I love in wrestling matches, where Bret jumps from the top rope and Diesel tries to catch him in a bear hug. And they both fall, but Diesel holds on and powers his way back up. See, I love little moments like that because it makes the match seem more realistic for me. Diesel smartly starts to work the back off of that. First with a side suplex that would make Dino Bravo come. Then a back stretch which really looks impressive. He's got him over his knee. Brett is like dead in the match and very slowly getting beaten down. Uh, and then Diesel breaks out a, a standing backbreaker. I'm loving this. I'm really loving Diesel's offense here. Um, bit of a problem with the standing backbreaker. It's the old one that Rick Rude used to do too. You know, you get the guy up on your shoulder. But like, Diesel, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be easier if you got him up there just to, you know, drop him with the jackknife? I mean, he's there. He's in the exact position. And even if he doesn't think it would finish him, I mean, it would hurt more than the backbreaker. Brett fights out of a sleeper for a few seconds. Diesel throws Brett right into the ref. Hebner's right up. And I'm not sure if that's planned or not. And the whole thing was to, there's the whole business to expose the turnbuckle in the corner. But the short and the long of it is, is that Diesel gets blasted into exposed turnbuckle. I love to Bret Hart's version of the 10 punches in the corner. Such great intensity and urgency to it. Brett has to break out the heart attack clothesline on the floor for Diesel. Fantastic bump uh, by Michaels as he gets punched off the apron. We go into a series of great near falls for Brett and Diesel. Diesel beats up Neidhart. Sean gets Brett from behind with the belt. Diesel then gets Brett with a jackknife but then Anvil runs him for the DQ to save the title. Uh, Neidhart then leaves Sean and Diesel beat the shit out of Brett. Sean <laughs> and Diesel kick the crap out of him. I, look, I had it originally a three and a half. I think I'm still at three and a half. I think it's a fun match. I think Diesel's lumbering offense hurt it a little bit, but I like the story, and I think it's very good, but nothing beyond that for me, but it would probably exceeded all expectations for what we thought a Diesel match would be in June of 1994. Number four from WrestleMania 12 versus The Undertaker. Uh, I love this match. It's I think it's my favorite match on this show. Uh, very silent reaction for Diesel though from the fans. But that's kind of the story of this show. I don't think it's anything to do with the characters. Diesel, though, showing all the swagger here of Kevin Nash. And it's such a cool matchup for the time because Taker, it really only fought monsters to this point. And plus, they're always shaky about doing face face matches. And I don't know. I mean, Diesel's kind of like a tweener here, which is interesting. But I love that the second The Undertaker gets his hat off on the entrance, they're slugging. They're right at it. Right off the bat, it feels like a hate-filled fight. And Taker, I like that he seems... It looks like he thinks he has to win fast because he goes for a tombstone early and busts out a high cross body. Uh, Then Taker does a flying something at Diesel who moves and takes control of the match. And this might sound insane, but I feel The Undertaker, at least here... Kind of looks like shit next to Diesel. I mean, Diesel is chiseled. He's not pale as fuck. Like, he doesn't look ill the way The Undertaker looks ill. Like, if you walked in off the street and had no knowledge of what was happening, you might think that, like, this cool guy with the tassels is fighting a meth addict. Diesel's taunting him. The Undertaker's great as he beats him down. I think there's just such great character stuff from Diesel here that's not in his other matches. And man, the more... The more I watch Diesel... And the more I watch this run, I'm like, why couldn't we have this dude in the title run? We go to a bear hug spot, and uh, this is where I wish Diesel had a better toolbox of holds. Up until this point, it's been a fight, and this the, the bear hug really slows the match down to a crawl. I mean, it's not killing it, but it feels like the match should be gearing up, not gearing down. A great contrast to this, the Batista-Undertaker match that we talked about in the Batista. Like, it, it just never gears down. Like, it, it just keeps going up and up and up and up and up, which I really like. Um, I will say there's a great power spot too as Taker suplexes his way out of a headlock. It looked like he did all the work too. And then Diesel nails a jackknife out of nowhere. But instead of pinning there, he just kind of stands around and brags. He also does his favorite thing. He leans on the ropes. He then checks if Undertaker's dead by kicking him in the chest. Taker sits up, eats another jackknife. Diesel's still not pinning him. He does too. He does. Diesel has a great impression of gaining power from the urn, though, which got a laugh out of me. And even though I'm picturing it now, it's still funny. He finally goes down for a pin, but Taker greets him with a hand on his neck. Diesel just fucking punches his way out, though, which is great. Happens twice. Finally, after a third time, they get up, but Diesel nails him with a belly-to-back suplex. Um, then, but Undertaker kind of takes back control. Flying clothesline, labored slam. Taker picks him up, tombstones him, pins Diesel. We're done. Man, really good match. Um, I'm a little bothered watching it this time uh, by the match structure at the end. Like, did Diesel not learn the lesson of, like, you shouldn't play with your opponents from the Bret Hart match at Survivor Series? I mean, if Undertaker could understand, like, if Undertaker could withstand one jackknife, why would you be so blase about beating him after the second? Why would you keep falling for these chokes at the end? Anyway, I still think it's really good. I think it's Undertaker's first very good WrestleMania match. And Diesel kind of goes out of WrestleMania with a bang. Uh, crazy to think that that's his last WrestleMania match ever, which to me is completely shocking. All right, his number three best match from SummerSlam 1994. Oh, uh, Undertaker Diesel was three and a half from SummerSlam um, 1994 versus Razor Ramon. So I know we kind of covered this in the Ramon, uh, the Ramon wrestler that was, but I didn't rewatch it then. I was going off memory. So let's do it now. Uh, I love to, read right off the beginning, Shawn Michaels on the entrance running out in front of Diesel tells you everything you need to know about their relationship in two seconds. Diesel is a double champion, looks super legit here. Um, Walter Payton comes down, and I'm going to I'm gonna go out on a limb and um, say that he brought that towel from home to carry. Like, he was like, ah, oh, you know, that's what seconds do. So we brought it, and like... No one kind of had the heart to tell him it wasn't necessary. No, it's oh, it's good, sweetness. I'm glad you brought that. Great idea. Uh, great start. Guys are just throwing bombs. Like You know, when Diesel's in a fight, I think it works really well. Diesel gets the better with the boot, throat in the corner. Uh, it's Again, he's leaning, obviously. Uh, nice touch, though. While, while Diesel is choking Razor in the corner, Michaels is pulling Razor's hair from the back. Um, the crowd is losing all kinds of their minds for Razor as he fights his way out of a headlock. And I think just like in the Brett match at the last pay-per-view, Michaels causes a distraction to get the turnpuckle pad off. My absolute favorite spot of the match, though, is Sean baiting the ref to the outside to protect Walter Payton. And then he runs around and jumps off the steps and levels Razor with a clothesline. Razor barely beats the count for that one. And Sean and Diesel throw a mini tantrum. But Sean is just so good at causing these distractions. He's basically a third participant in the match. And the match is better for it. The crowd is biting on all of Razor's comebacks. Diesel firmly in control, though. Razor fights his way back, blocking punches, and eventually crotches Diesel on the post. And after a bulldog, Razor gets a close two. The crowd is losing it. Whatever they're doing here, it's super effective for the live audience. Michaels and Peyton get into a tug-of-war over the title. This allows Michaels to go for the super kick. And it's 94, so Diesel holds him. Ramon moves. Diesel eats the super kick. Both guys down. Peyton's chasing Michaels around. Ramon crawls over for the cover, and just as he hits three, Michaels jumps into the ring. Amazing timing from Michaels there. So much fun. Crowd is loving every minute of it. Just a blast from start to finish. I have it at three and three quarters, but I think it's—I think this is as close to a four-star match as you can get without it being a four-star match for me. Uh, that being said, I wouldn't begrudge anybody who had it higher. It's so good. All right, his second best match of all time. Uh, from the 1995 Survivor Series versus Bret Hart. Now, I'm not going to include my review for this here because we just covered this match on No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred is JT and I's show that goes every other um, Saturday on North-South Connection. And we are breaking down every single WWF title change uh, that, that, that's happened, WWF World title change that's happened. Um, so I'm going to let my words on that one stay there and not repeat. Um, this is where Bret... Uh, Plays Possum, rolls up Diesel. But I think the match is unreal. Um, It's great. Uh, It's not carried by Brett. I think both guys do a tremendous job. The table spot is memorable. The finish is cool. And Diesel's post-match beating while cursing up a storm is awesome. I have it at four and a quarter. So that leaves us with one match left. And it's almost sad that in all these arguments between Brett and Sean, it's always Sean that wins. But for me, Diesel's best match in company history... From In Your House, Good Friends, Better Enemies, trying to win the world title from Shawn Michaels in a no-holds-barred match. So Diesel comes out. His swagger as he comes out is awesome. He's way too wet, but he's he's good. And I think we get a cool shot backstage of Shawn Michaels backstage with Vothorio trying to pump him up. Because Michaels on his face has got this great combination of being worried, but also furious. Diesel gets in the ring. He fucking whips his vest at Vince. It's awesome. Vince looks legit pissed. And I don't blame him. It must have been heavy when it hit him. Diesel continues to stare him down. I love it. It's great. Hey, we get a shot of a mad dog Vashon for some reason. This might be a coincidence, uh, but I love that Sean is wearing predominantly black. Uh, Like he knows he's going to have to kind of go dark to beat this dude. uh, A dude he's never beat. Uh, all determination from Sean coming to the ring, and I'm fucking here for it. I love it. Like, he's not doing any of his usual shit. He's disrobing on the way to the ring. Like, he's not dancing. He just gets in and starts punching, right? I love the start. Michael's dodging um, blows, coming back his way. But if Diesel does connect, Sean goes down. So Sean will hit like three four punches, but one from Diesel will put Sean down. Great urgency, though, from Sean. As soon as he gets the chaps off, he's baseball sliding. He's doing moonsaults to the floor. Ugh, this match is so freaking good. Um, such a good spot next. And I don't like recapping move for move. I, I try not to anyway. But Sean does like the crazy flare flip in the corner that he always does really fast. But Diesel sees it and showing great urgency sprints over and knocks him from the apron to the barricade. And Michaels makes that... number. Not only does the flip look great to get to the, get to the apron, but like the way he flies off Diesel's double axe handle is amazing. Diesel's body language also is great here. Vince is like, "Look at the look of disdain in Diesel," but it's not just the look; it's the old demeanor. Diesel then goes over to Jose Lothario, goes, "Hey, old man, this is how we do it in the '90s." <laughs> such great character stuff here. Um, I love too. Diesel does a huge jump on the Dino Bravo suplex. I, it, it's so big. I, I've, I've never seen someone jump so high on this move. It, he must have jumped three feet off the ground. Diesel then chokes the shit out of the, um, out of, um, <laughs> he chokes the ref. I don't know why he chokes the ref, but then he takes the ref's belt off. Um, uh, sadly for Earl, it was not for a big daddy blow job. And Diesel just beats Michaels with the belt as Lawler's screaming, ruin his life, Diesel, ruin his life. Jesus, Jerry, I guess he was pissed about finding, being found at the rumble. Diesel hangs Sean with the belt. Crowd is actually getting visibly uncomfortable, which I think is good. I love, too, that Diesel's hurting everyone. He hurts the ref. He tosses Howard Finkel for his chair. He marches around and devastates Michaels with the chair. Michaels dodges the chair, uh, about to take control, but then Diesel hits the low blow. So good. This has got to be the best match ever in Omaha, right? Crazy back body drop. (laughs) So impressive, it almost gets a near fall. Michaels goes so high in the air. The match slows down a bit. We go to the neck wrench, but this probably won't have the match graded a bit higher. But such a great story as we go that Sean won't stop fighting even though he's completely overmatched. It's it's the perfect way to get this character over. Then, Diesel kills Michaels dead uh, with a jackknife through Vince and King's table. Great visual because he slams Michaels right in the middle and the two monitors go up in the air and land on Michaels. And then Vince is also down. Vince is begging Michaels to stop, but Michaels has too much fight in him. The heat is unreal. The crowd is pissed, right? But Diesel hasn't really done anything too heelish except beat him up. Sean takes back control of the fire extinguisher blast. I'm not a fan of that. Michaels back in on fire. Great punches, forearm. He goes to get a chair, but it's all tangled up from the table spot. Like it's all tangled in wires. It looks so chaotic and disorganized. I love it. It looks like it's not part of the show. All this, uh, too, while Diesel's playing to his fans. Uh, Shawn then reverses a powerbomb. The place loses their minds. The investment in the match is off the charts. Vince is cheering. like He's like, yeah, go, Shawn. But I don't mind because Diesel's been a dick to him all night. Michael's rally is cut short. Then the big moment happens. Diesel attacks, <laughs> attacks mad dog Vachon, takes off his prosthetic leg. This is so fucking crazy. He raises it to hit Sean, but then Sean returns the favor with a low blow. Sean wallets him with the leg. Sean does the prep for the sweet chin music, but it's fucking full of anger. Like, it's just, he's so pissed. He then hits the super kick and wins. A word, too, about Sean's post-match. I fucking love it. Like, it makes it seem like the win was the most important thing that had ever happened to him. He's throwing his middle fingers at Diesel. He's, He's pumping his arms. He's telling him to get out. Amazing stuff. See, this match, I'm having it at four and a half. I could see it higher. This match is incredible because of, because of the action, but also because it looked like it mattered to both guys. Sean came to the ring with none of his fanfare. He wanted to fight and win. Diesel imbued everything he did with the character. And when Sean finally did win, it looked like it mattered. Just an incredible transcendent brawl. Ah, fuck it. I'm putting it up. Four and three quarters. Holy hell, what a war. So look, Diesel's best matches are against masters of the ring. But he's not really carried in all of them. When he needed, he could deliver something resembling the greatest matches of all time. Just fucking don't put him in there with Triple H. Let's deal with promos. So, Kevin Nash in general is well regarded in terms of being able to deliver a great promo. I'm curious to see though where that starts because I think he does have some stinkers. Now normally, we could push the stinkers to the side... But I feel it's important to bring them up because they permeated the most important run that he had in the company. Let's give the first one a listen.
0: (laughs) So, King Mabel, you've got yourself a royal plan. And I guess I've taken the first three installments of it. But the last one at Monday Night Raw with Davey Boy Smith jumping me from behind. Well, buddy, that's the last straw. But you know what? Each time you put your hands on me, you cause damage. You've spilt some diesel fuel, but you know what? You are careless, and you got some on yourself. Summerslam, that's right. I'm going to take a blowtorch to you. And when it's all said and done, Armageddon in your little kingdom, King Mabel.
1: So despite what um, many might think, I'm not an idiot. And I know this is an audio medium, but I have to mention Diesel's body language here because it's terrible. He's got his arms super crossed, way too tightly. He just looks like unnaturally uncomfortable. Or he's freezing cold. Now, it is 95, so maybe uh, the heat in Titan Towers was turned off. I don't know, right? But he starts. So, King Mabel, you've got yourself a royal plan, and I think I've taken the first three installments of it. So there should definitely be a tonal change between talking about the royal plan and speaking to the fact that Diesel himself is taking has taken the first three installments. One part is speaking to the plan that Mabel has about how he's going to take the title. And you need a tone change because then the next part is talking about how it's affected Diesel. It's also all said in one tone, looking off camera as though someone has a gun to the head of his loved ones. It's clunky wording too, likening King Mabel to having a plan to take the championship to... Someone making a plan to pay back a personal debt. I mean, who is this for? Accountants? No. Or someone in crippling debt? Maybe. Who knows? Now the next part. But the last one. At Monday Night Raw. With Davey Boy Smith jumping me from behind. Well, buddy, that's the last straw. So, he kind of starts to growl here a bit. Which is good. But he kind of ceases to speak like a human being. And this feels like a good time to talk about intentions. Intentions. What does a character want? That's what, that's what an intention is to an actor. What, is the, what does the character want? Because people in life don't talk for nothing, although sometimes it seems like they are. No, every word coming out of someone's mouth has an intention behind it. Like I may tell a joke to you to, uh, and, and, and you laugh, right? So why am I doing that? Well, it's, it's not really to make you laugh. It's probably to get personal satisfaction from it. And this might be conscious or unconscious. Now, poor writing... Is when someone says nothing, uh, says something for nothing. If you're writing a script, those are the first things you cut out. That's why twenty-minute monologues uh, in the ring to start RAW rarely work, because it's people blabbing to feel time. So let's just deal with that sentence, because it is one sentence, despite the fact that he's treating it like four, right? Uh, but the last one at Monday night uh, at Monday Night RAW with Davey Boysmith Smith jumping from behind, uh, well, buddy, that's the last straw. So in essence, this is one sentence and one thought, right? Technically, one thought has one emphasis. Diesel here makes one sentence into four, and it doesn't make sense. And he emphasizes one word in each of the four parts, and that's what makes it sound fake. That's the, that's a big thing for making things sound fake. So listen, this is what he says. But the last one, at Monday Night Raw, with Davy Boy Smith jumping me from behind. Well, buddy... That's the last straw. That's four emphases, emphases <laughs> inside of four sentence fragments. People don't talk like that. Even if we take the sentence as is, it's clunky, right? But even if it if it was the sentence, what you would say is, but the last one at Monday Night Raw with David Boy Smith jumping from behind, well, buddy, that's the last straw. With David Boy Smith jumping from behind is what's called an insert. It's additional information that isn't necessary to the rest of the sentence. So you, you heighten it a bit. It could read, but the last one at Monday Night Raw, well, buddy, that was the last straw. And I would put the emphasis on the word last. That may or may not be right. You got to test it out and see. But my instinct tells me that the intention of this speech is to get Mabel worried. I want him to be afraid. Like, that's how I would phrase it if I was Diesel the actor. I want Mabel to be afraid, right? He needs to know not about Monday Night Raw, not about Davy Boy Smith, not about buddies. He needs to know this is the last time something like this will happen right it really should read uh but the last one at monday night raw with David boy smith jumping from behind well buddy that's the last straw that emphasize if you choose the word last there it it adds clarity to what diesel the character wants let's keep going he starts ranting and raving about diesel fuel being careless and he's infusing it all with a tone that thinks he's just a little bit crazy Like a Steve Martin wild and crazy guy. I I guess I like it in theory. I think the wording is just way too cutesy. It's all one tone. It's boring as fuck. If this was stretched over 20 minutes, you would change the channel. The only tool he uses in his toolbox, his acting toolbox, is getting louder or quieter. Like when he exclaims, I'm going to take a blowtorch. See if this sounds like human speaking. And when it's all said and done, Armageddon. In your little kingdom, Mabel. He ends the promo with King Mabel, with Mabel, open inflected. You never end a statement open inflected. It insinuates to the audience that there's more to say, right? Like, it's like King Mabel, what else? Uh, But there's not much to say anyway, right? Like, why throw out the word Armageddon without any contextual words? How about it will be Armageddon? It's brutal. It's a brutal promo. The writing, the performing, none of it works. It's a dude yelling uncomfortably. Keep in mind, too, this is pre-taped. This is the best take they had. All right, we shit on him, so let's look at a different one.
0: Obviously, with something to say, he left the arena at the Survivor Series. A lot of people are probably wondering where Big Daddy Cool's head's at right now. I'd like to know. You know, I thought about it. And I thought maybe I'd come out here and apologize for what I did to Brett. And for what I did to all my dear fans. Who needs them? I don't think so. No. You know, last night, when I went back to my hotel room, I wondered if I'd be able to get any sleep. For the first time in a year, I slept like a baby. When I woke up this morning, and I looked in the mirror, you know what I saw? A small smile on my face. The first time I saw myself smile in a year. Because I saw myself. Not some corporate puppet that you decided to create, Vince. No. You missed the ball on this one, baby. You missed the ball. After I won the title, 24 hours later, I'm up in Titan Tower with the marketing suits, the merchandising suits. Hey, Diesel, we need you to smile a little bit. We need you to be a little bit more politically correct, a little bit more corporate. Well, baby, what you saw last night was the tip of the iceberg. Big Danny Cool's back. That same guy you saw in Providence at the Royal Rumble a couple of years ago. me right now is my family, my friends, that includes you, Shawn Michaels. And I, I'm not saying something. I'm not saying I'm not going to smack hands, but I better have a black glove on it, baby, because I know you're with me. Whether you like me, love me, or hate me, hey, that's the way it's gonna be. I'm back.
1: Okay. So right away, you can tell this is a real person who's speaking. Right? Right off the bat. You know, a lot of people are asking where Big Daddy Cool's head's at. Such a small point next, but a very um, a very strong one for Diesel. He he goes, you know, I thought about it. And I thought. Maybe I'd come out here and apologize. I feel in the last promo we listened to, um, he would have, uh, the two ton- if, if this were the last promo, the two tones of the word thought would have come out the exact same way. But here, he's like, I thought about it and I thought. This really indicates to me that he's actually speaking from the heart because the second thought comes out with a touch of derision to it. It could have been, I thought about it and I thought, which would have, doesn't mean anything but instead he colors it i thought about it and i thought it's it's a subtle change but it gives me hope that the rest of the promo right when we repeat whenever we repeat words we do so for emphasis and the second one is almost always more emphasized let's tell people speak i love the mocking tone he takes too when he's like um when, when he's like uh Uh, I I should apologize for what I did to Brett and all my dear fans. The sarcasm on the word dear is awesome. But again, going back to intentionality, he clearly wants you to feel stupid for thinking he did anything wrong. He's using an action to mock, to cripple any criticisms of his behavior. It's wonderful. It's a really good choice. The next line about going back to his hotel room and finally being able to sleep at night is the perfect contrast to the last one, to the last one, Monday Night Raw, Davy Boy stuff. All his inflections are open at the, uh, at the end. He's like, I went back to the hotel and I slept. And I slept like a baby until he finally closes it, right? The whole line drives to him sleeping like a baby. He didn't emphasize a ton of words to muddy the waters. We knew what his point was. And at this point, he's using all the tools that were lacking in the first promo. And it's not just, not just the contents. I woke up. I saw a smile on my face. He adds excitement to the idea that this is the first time he smiled in a year. It's like he's realizing it as he's saying it. It's a real person. This is who he's supposed to be now. He's tired of being fake. And I think that's the point of the promo. And it's interesting that he's sounding way more real now. Also, too, great contrast describing himself versus some corporate puppet that Vince decided to create. You can feel the 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 scorn in his voice when he talks about being a puppet. And it, this might be the first time Vince is acknowledged as the owner on TV. Anyway, Diesel follows up with... Um, You missed the ball on this one, baby. And it lands for two reasons. Number one, it's true. Number two, it's not wrapped up in some sort of a fucking truck reference. And I don't want to repeat myself too much here. Uh, Diesel still struggles a bit uh, with tone, but at least now he's structuring his speeches like a million times better. He talks about being asked to smile and be more corporate. And then he contrasts it with the sheer fun of like what you saw last night was just the tip of the iceberg. It's such a good contrast and without needing to say, I'm going to be a new diesel. He says it with tone, right? Big Daddy Cool is back and I, loves it, I love it that he ties it back. He's like, I'm going to be the guy that you saw in Providence at the Royal Rumble a couple of years ago. That's a great reference because I think it tells you that he knows how pivotal those people were to him becoming who he is now. And I like that he gives him a shout out. And then we get the, tr- the crux of the transformation. This is where the tweener is born. He's like, I'm out for my family and my friends, right? Great. I love that. He's like, he jumps up a bit. Like he's like, I'm out for my friends. Hey, and don't think I'm, I'm not going to be smacking hands. He jumps up in his vocal quality. It's great. It's like, he's excited to reassure people. I'm still going to take your support, but the follow-up is brilliant. It's like, I'm not saying I'm not going to smack hands, but it better have a black glove on it, baby. Oh, he drops it down. It's so good. Uh, he's going to be loyal to those who are loyal to him. Awesome stuff. Great closing line. Whether you love me or hate me, it's the way it's going to be. I'm back. This is a great promo. I love it. Clear intentions, great use of really simple acting tricks, and a total reinvention inside two minutes. So it's hard to rank promos for him, but I'm going to give a bit more weight to his best work Okay, and go seven. I think in general, Kevin Nash is just really comfortable public speaking. But when he's focused, he can really kill it out there. He did a great job on that last one. Uh, so I'm going to go seven uh, on that. All right, let's give him historical importance. I think... I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to deal with here. Far and beyond uh, being the longest reigning champion in the 1990s, being the leader of the new generation, I think Diesel almost tops out at this category for one reason alone. From Survivor Series 95 to WrestleMania 12, I think Diesel is the first real tweener character in company history. Now, sure, there have been guys that have towed the line between heel and face before, but Diesel did something really new for the promotion. It was also an acknowledgement that the old style of the smiling babyface champion wasn't going to play anymore. Diesel went out on TV and basically said, if you cheer me, great, but I'm looking out for number one. It was new and unique and it worked. It's really the template For all their big characters going forward. From Steve Austin to early John Cena. They all owe a debt of gratitude to Big Daddy Cole for breaking the mold. He also, I mean look, he changed the wrestling business by leaving. So in a kind of backwards way, he made the WWF what it became in the late 1990s. Because if he sticks around, that that probably doesn't happen. At least not to the same level. We probably still have Vince being like, "Oh, I don't want to talk to you with good guys and bad guys. He also created an entirely new way to push a guy. The diesel push in the rumble has been duplicated ever since. And it's never felt as special, but it always helps um, someone standing in the rumble. Diesel is also another interesting template for someone they want to push to the moon. Within all the year, he gets the belts, right? That's the same template they would use for Kurt Angle later. So I think on those points, his influence on the business is huge. Yeah, he comes back to diminishing returns later and usually comes and ruins something. That's fine. I mean, he doesn't ruin Triple H. He's already ruined. But the good far outweighs the bad. Eight out of ten. And I think of all the guys with profiled so far, he's the most historically important. And it's cool. I like that like, some guys are succeeding in some categories and others. Diesel 2 is a great example of being at the right place at the right time. They needed someone in 1995 to carry the big belt. Yes, they had Bret Hart on the roster, and he would have been a far better choice. But in their mind, they needed the next Hulk Hogan, then and there. So of course, um, to replace the 6-foot7-tan superhuman from California, they chose the tall, lanky, dark-haired street thug from Detroit. <sighs> if only Lex Luger had been a tremendous bodybuilding success and had waited until late '94 to join the wrestling uh, <laughs> the wrestling end of the empire, what a different world it would be. Now, they completely botched his title run with awful opponents, but that's not really his fault. That's not Diesel's fault. I think he did the best he could with the hand that he was dealt. Um, and it really is incredible that he did achieve what he did in the WWF. I mean, who would have ever thought that fucking Oz would be the champion of the biggest promotion in the world within three years? Or Vinny Vegas, for that matter. I guess it pays to become friends with the guy that Vince McMahon's in love with. Now, I say that But when Diesel was given the opportunity, he ran with it and killed it in the role until he didn't. But then the question remains, was this a good thing or a bad thing for business? I mean, legend has it that Diesel's run on top coincides with one of the times where the WWF was on the verge of going bankrupt. I know that for me personally, this was a time when I was completely tuned out of the product. I didn't like it. I don't know if I'd place the blame at Diesel's feet, but I can't imagine it helped. Now, if one believes the adage that it's not what's happening now that drives ratings, but it's instead the culmination of what's happened for the past few months that dictates the current state of the business, we could probably make a strong case that the year 1995, headlined by Diesel, is the foundation of the 83-week trouncing the WWF took at the hands of WCW, especially when WCW was able to take a guy like Diesel and use him in a far better role than he was performing in WWF. So while Kevin Nash was huge business for WCW, I think that the bulk of his career as Diesel or Kevin Nash was kind of like box office poison in the WWF and later the WWE. And for all the shit I gave him about work rate, of his 23 pay-per-view matches, eight times he's involved in the best match on a particular card. That's really good. Only four times in the worst match. And again, we're dealing with his run being during the worst years in company history, but he's still a highlight. So his influence is massive, uh, both good and bad. I'm going eight out of 10. Presentation. I think we can say without reservation that this dude was always presented strong throughout his career. He rose to be the centerpiece of the promotion within a year and a half of his arrival. From that point, he was always their guy. Hell, even when he had no business main eventing shows, he was still a main eventer in perpetuity even after they cut off all his fucking hair. They literally could not have done more throughout his career to push him stronger, with the exception of not making him an an insufferable father. bit of a mixed bag so first we got the um the car horns uh, beeping and blaring, and at first this seems like a bad idea but then i think back to SummerSlam 94 and him coming out to the revving felt big time so while it's one of those ideas that seems kind of dumb in theory it actually kind of works um this is a company too that love their horns and sirens i mean the rtc made us furious salvia vegas horn made us disappointed but this one was Fine. Then, we get this gem. Starting with the horns again. Uh, But we get some actual music to back these trucks. Yes! Yes, it sounds like he's driving through a blues bar. But it. Well. You know, I never took Kevin Nash as a southerner or someone who cared about the blues. I mean, what does this dude have to be blue about? The dude's seven feet tall, great hair, great shape. You mean to tell me that he hasn't fucked his way through the Detroit Chicago corridor? No, no, I'm supposed to believe that this guy's on his back porch busting out his harmonica and telling us how shitty it is to be a tall, successful, professional athlete? This song does not fit him at all. His, his music should be trumpets blaring to the heavens because this guy won the lottery of life. Anyways, I guess it's cool. Uh, it's, it's got a good beat. It fits with his tassels. It doesn't fit with his beautiful face or presumably monster cock. It's fine. NWO uh, song doesn't work inside of a WWF arena uh, at all. His Kevin Nash music from 2003 uh, was weirdly interesting. Um, I wanted to blow it off, but it kind of sounds like, well, here, listen. sounds like diesel's music without the trucks which i guess would be like stone cold's music without the glass or hogan's music without the america it's not bad or anything it's just generic Uh, i mean listen to it it's it's there right so i guess it's a successful dude banging his hot wife singing the blues uh followed by a living truck being raped in front of a microphone Uh, then nothing generic beat then the nwo sure Diesel had three championship reigns. um His tag run a bit unspectacular. His IC run was fun, uh, and his world title run was a year long. So I guess the WWF title, if you were to rank those reigns, is at first. Right. Thankfully, they never gave him the European title. Now, in many ways, it's bittersweet. Diesel left the promotion when he did, though. Without the NWO, the business doesn't change to the same level. It doesn't force Vince to do what he hates most: be creative. It probably just stays the same. However. I would have loved to see Diesel a, t- a title run in 96 where they let him be himself, right? I really think that Diesel belongs in the pantheon of great characters that have a very short window. Like that Diesel from Survivor Series 95 to when he leaves the first time. I think original DX Shawn Michaels is in there, Hollywood Rock. It would have been incredible for him the end, to end the boyhood dream at good friends, better enemies and have Shawn chase him. Diesel with the belt, that swagger, that new attitude. I think it would have worked. I wouldn't trade what we got for it. But it's still a shame that we didn't get more character, uh, that character on top. Let me uh, rank their attires for us. Uh, uh, Yeah, so. Number six, Kevin Nash. All in black, big daddy cool on the chest, no hair on his head. No one wanted to see this guy without hair. The hair was a part of him. Plus, he can't have all those tassels without the hair. That's like hair for his pants. The hair on his pants match the hair on his head. Without the head, the pants look like a fucking douche. Show some some solidarity. And I'm sorry. You cut off all your hair to play the Russian in The Punisher. You get a guy who can get, give great liners like Kevin Nash. I'm sure the dude can do a Russian accent. And you give him zero lines? Like, what the actual fuck? The whole point of that character is that he said stupid, irreverent things. Garth Ennis must have been just furious in his living room after cashing that giant check five, look, 2011 spokesperson for Grecian Formula for Men. I mean, look, we'd already seen him with gray hair or even with that weird Rachel Green look in the NWO. But now he comes back with much thinner hair that's blacker. I mean, it's the blackest hair I've ever seen. It's jet black. I've never seen a black jet. That would be a disaster at night. Anyway, 2011 is is here because of his awful hair. Number four, Nash across the chest, uh, wearing all black diesel stuff. You look. This is his initial 2003 run. His hair would get all frizzy on the sides. Maybe it was humid around the fireworks. I don't know. Number three, original Diesel. Nothing across the chest, but he's all decked out in black. His mullet, though, spectacular, especially at the '94 Rumble. I, in fact, I believe that if you ask a Rhode Islander, uh, they will tell you that that it was the hair that garnered that standing ovation. Number two, Big Daddy Cool early WWF title run. All black attire. With Diesel or Big Daddy Cool across the tum-tum. The vest has cool studs. Uh, One glove makes him look badass. Love it. But my favorite Diesel look. Big Daddy Cool silver edition. I mean, I kind of mentioned that the dude looked like a bigger star, in the uh, like the biggest star in the world at WrestleMania 12. But I love the black and silver combo. I think it looks so, so good. It's like Vince heard that the LA Raiders were popular and were like, hey, put my champion in it. Uh, bonus points for the mania twelve writing across his chest that says Big D. I can only picture Vince explaining this away. Well, what do you mean? It's funny. Uh, it's Big D for Diesel. Doc Hendricks too was always pimping some shit with Diesel on it. They'd drag his ass out in the entranceway. He'd hawk a shirt with Diesel and sit on it, something like that. By the middle of '95, they were all on board the Diesel train when it came to merch. They even put out their own their own merch on Diesel because he looks like a fucking model. Like, look at the cover of the 1995 fall calendar for the further proof. It's Diesel in a WWF sweatshirt, fist in the air, seemingly waving it around like he just didn't care. Now, sadly, they never made a Diesel shirt like that Atrocious Razor Ramon yellow monstrosity, although they probably would have looked much better in black and silver. But open the catalog. You'll be treated to Diesel shirts with his face on it, Diesel shades, best of all, Diesel gloves. Now, I don't know why they sold them in pairs, since Diesel himself fancied himself a jacked-up Michael Jackson. I take umbrage with the Diesel foam finger, too. It has the index finger pointing out. The dude never pointed. It should have been a foam fist, and you should have been prepared to put it into someone's dick if the need arose. Diesel was also part of the first Jack's figure line, the bone-crunching action, released around 1996. Part of the first series that included Brett, Sean, Razor, and Goldust. Not a banned face scan, either. The face looked much better than, say, the weird Shawn Michaels or the Nightmare Bret Hart face. He'd get a nice revamp as part of the Jax Classic Superstar line in the mid-2000s. The figure came with a sweet vest and a fist to be raised in the air. And they do a great job of making his legs proportional to his body, which is something real-life Diesel struggles with. Since then, Diesel's had a great run with the Mattel Elite series. It's pretty easy to track down the all-black Diesel, like the one that sits on my shelf, but the crown jewel of the Diesel line has to be the Elite 16 figure, which uh, is the only one to date that I've seen with the silver top uh, singlet version of Diesel. Stupid. It made me look it up for this project and now I'm like, oh, I gotta get it. He was the face of promotion. Always near the top of the card. His run was short, but he was dominant. I'm giving a solid eight for presentation. Feuds. Going home. Feuds. I mean, look, poor Diesel has the unfortunate honor of spending the majority of his title run defending against the Million Dollar Corporation which is one of the worst factions of all time. I would rather watch Kurgan lead the truth commission to the top, side suplex after side suplex, than watch Nikolai Volkov stuff himself into those one-cent trunks. I suppose the most enduring and nuanced feud is the one with Shawn Michaels. He goes from friend to reluctant enemy to nonsensical friend, back to enthusiastic enemy. It's a roller coaster. He and Triple H fight over Shawn Michaels' love. Not great. His feud with Razor is more of an extension of the Sean feud with Razor. Like, Razor was never really mad at Diesel. That's why he teamed with him so long after. He must have gotten over Diesel doing something to his gold. Undertaker feud was good. I love Diesel played off the idea that he wasn't scared of the dark. I guess that makes sense since he's a functional adult. Try telling that to fucking Kamala. But it's all contrasted with the feud with Sid, which was garbage. The feud with Dave Boy Smith, worse, Mabel. Then again, these aren't really feuds. They're just one or two matches each. Not to beat a dead horse, but I think once Randy Savage and Jake Roberts ended their feud, the WWF was like, we're not going to top it. Don't do feuds anymore. I'm 5 out of 10 for feuds. Last category, moments. While few in number, uh, the big ones do stand out. The Rumble, huge. The title win in MSG, I think it's the last one like that too, uh, coming out of nowhere. Massive jump up. He gets the feud with The Undertaker. More impressively though, is he gets to leave WrestleMania as champion, as a face, And while that's not really so true anymore, that was always the gold standard as to who their biggest star was. Think of the list of guys up to that point who had left the biggest show of the year as champion as a face. Hogan, Savage, Warrior, Brett, Diesel. His biggest NWO moment for me in 2002 is the first time Vince shows his picture on TV when he says, nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the fact that these men... Then they reveal the picture, and the crowd loses their shit. It's all downhill from there. I suppose his 2003 run is is pretty big, as like it's losing his hair. But I'll be honest, like I'm I'm struggling to put like a jump up moments together for him. I think his best angle is everything to do with Shawn Michaels, from protecting him to removing a man's leg to smash him in the head. Good story, better part of three years. The worst angle, the text message saga with Triple H um, and CM Punk, unnecessary, didn't help. His single worst moment. I think, it's, I think it's just being forced to go 18 minutes with Triple H in 2011. It's a match that nobody wanted and no one needed. And poor Nash was cooked, but he still managed to insult the audience's intelligence with multiple sledgehammer shots. And for what? Right? The honor of getting pinned by his buddy Triple H? Why do so many guys want to lose their last match to Triple H? Diesel, Batista. Why are they lining up to take pins from the guy who has literally been put over everyone ever? but his single best moment for Diesel has to be the 94-row rumble. The dude was positively dominant, tossing out seven guys in seven minutes and really changing the course of the entire promotion. Diesel that night got more than a standing ovation. He created his own push and launched himself into super stardom. It's sometimes hard to pinpoint the exact moment that someone becomes a star. Well, we fucking can here. It's when he punches Virgil in the face, then he tosses him to the floor, Conquering the meat sauce man once and for all. I remember when I heard that Diesel, um, you know, when I heard Diesel won the world title, I was like, what? And how? And why? And truth be told, 1995 was more than likely the nadir of my wrestling, wrestling fandom. But looking back, I think it's an unfair supposition that it was all Diesel's fault. I get why they made him champion. I get why he would be the centerpiece of the promotion. I think his WWF title run failure is more of a victim of circumstance than anything Kevin Nash himself did. Much like the Ultimate Warrior in 1990, they didn't exactly set him up for success with their challengers upon his ascent. Ultimately, he became a great influential character whose legacy may have been hurt with each subsequent return. And let's not pretend that he wasn't beloved as Diesel, all right? Just listen to the reaction he gets at the 2011 Royal Rumble. Before coming back and ruining the year with Triple H he's given a hero's welcome As for the wrestler that was Diesel finishes with 61.63 points which of the five we've done places him fourth ahead of the Honky Tonk Man and just barely below Razor Ramon I think that's fair When looking back at his career I was left with one big thought Fuck Triple H man he's the worst No My thought was that why couldn't they just let this dude be himself the whole time The run from Survivor Series until 1996, when he departs, is magic. He's totally unique and an interesting character, and his influence is still felt today. I just don't get why it took them so long to learn this lesson. Don't force guys into roles they're not suited for. Diesel wasn't a. a, He wasn't made to be a smiling, leaning, pandering idiot. He's a badass with quick wit and a fantastic grasp of sarcasm. And as long as they let him do that, he flourished. They didn't learn the lesson with their next guy, Shawn Michaels, either. It took Stone Cold Steve Austin breaking the mold to to really knock them out of this insane practice and forcing square pegs into round holes. Sadly, they currently need to relearn this lesson. It took years for the message of letting Roman Reigns be himself to set in. I think it's easy to look at the career of Kevin Nash and see only the bad. And we dealt with the bad. But it'd be folly to forget about why he kept getting chance after chance. He killed it as Diesel. And his meteoric rise to the top of the promotion was earned. Razor Ramon and Diesel changed the course of company history when they left for WCW. But Kevin Nash changed wrestling by flaunting convention. Giving us the first true modern character. For that alone, his career deserves to go down in the annals of the all-time greats. Next time, on The Wrestler That Was, we traveled to the 2000s to deal with a superstar who grew by leaps and bounds before our eyes and always delivered satisfaction. See you then.
0: The story you just told clearly points out that Triple H is a liar. You know, but
1: maybe, just maybe, Triple H is telling the truth. Maybe... Maybe you're the liar, Kevin Nash.
0: Would you like to see the text message on my telephone?
1: You want to see the text
0: message my little sister Shaleen sent me last night? Here, here it is. OMG, Kevin Nash, WTF, thought he was dead, LOL.